Let's read this, this uh, just a couple of verses today. You guys know I like 10 and 15 verse texts, but I'm just going to use two verses this morning. So let's take a look at that. Beginning in verse 9, Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, your word is life. Your word is powerful. Um, And so we thank you for it, Lord God. We ask that you would allow it and use it to accomplish everything that you want to accomplish in us today. Uh, Lord, we especially want to just take a moment and remember Katie and Rachel and their family today, Lord, as they are grieving and mourning the loss of this grandfather. And so, Father, I pray that you would um, just comfort all of them, Lord God, the entire Heinz family, Lord God, just just surround them and let your love just be expressed by many, many hands and faces, Lord God, toward them. And let this season of grieving, Lord God, um, just uh, uh, lead to a, a time of healing and, and restoration of their joy. And Lord, I pray that they would, they would um, even as they feel the sadness of the loss, that they would be, uh, God, just, just energized by the thought that that man is with you now, Lord God. And so I thank you for that. And um, Lord, just be with them, be close to them, be with us as we hear your word today. Let it challenge and change us in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Um, so last week, I challenged our church to be a preaching church. And, and what I meant when I say that, I, I told you I made this statement that I don't mean that our church needs to be a church with a preacher. I hope you're always that. And I hope I get to be that for a long, long time. But I said that, that there's a difference between being a church with a preacher and a preaching church. And, and what I meant was that the primary function of this or any other gospel-centered church is to be a community of people who are able to and willing to verbally proclaim the gospel as our most vital activity. There are a lot of good things that that we want to do, and there's a lot of good things that churches do, but there is nothing that is more important than the absolute clear proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you. I'm just about to do a pulse check here. It's the most important thing we do. I said that we're commissioned to do this in two ways. We, first, we edify or build up the, the people of God within the church, and we exhort or compel or encourage the people outside the church, unbelievers, to turn to Christ. And both of these, both of these activities are done primarily through the preaching or proclamation of the gospel. Now, as I concluded last week, I made a passionate statement. I, I kind of went off on a little tangent there about the philosophy that's summed up in the words that are commonly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, although St. Francis never actually said this. And the, the phrase that is often attributed to him is, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. The usual conclusion of the people who make use of this quote insists that preaching the gospel doesn't always require words, though it cannot be otherwise. And I made that, that, that uh, declaration last week that, you, that the gospel requires words. Uh, and, and if it doesn't have words attached to it, then the gospel truly has not yet been preached. And, and this is the problem with what sometimes is termed the social gospel. It, it's, it can be very social at times. And this isn't, this isn't a blanket 
statement, but at times it can be very social, but unfortunately it can also not be very gospel at times. It, it, it is a, it, it's a, a, an endeavor of good works that don't ever point, that doesn't ever point to the, the salvation that is found in Jesus through his uh, uh, atoning death. And it isn't helpful, I said, to create a false dichotomy between a clear verbal presentation of the gospel of God's redemptive work in Jesus and benevolent, merciful works, implying that works alone are superior to words, the words, the story of the gospel. But it was pointed out to me that in my intensity that I may have diminished the value of good works done in love towards the body of Christ, done in love towards the suffering world. And I want you to know, clearly, that was not my intention. That was not at all my intention. And I apologize for any confusion. So the message that I want to bring to you today will hopefully fill in some of the gaps in that communication. Uh, What is the role of our deeds in the goal of being a preaching church? What is the place of giving and benevolence and charity? What about kindness and merciful ministry shouldn't people expect those things to be central in the lives of christians is that a fair assumption that we should be merciful giving and generous people what did paul mean when he reminded the thessalonians last week in our text you, you might remember we read this when he said in first thessalonians 2 8 he said we were ready talking to the thessalonian believers he said we were ready not only to share with you the gospel of god but also our own lives also i think he's saying that while clear communication of the god's redemptive purposes are the main thing and that must never be questioned that is the main thing While that's the main thing, it's not the only thing. A life overflowing with sacrificial acts of love is a strong indicator of our belonging to Christ. The Bible says this. Jesus, in fact, said this. He said that by this shall all people everywhere know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So love is an indicator of our belonging to Christ. How much damage would you suspect has been done to the cause of Christ by those who were maybe eloquent in their theology and maybe that they demonstrated a a variety, a vast variety of spiritual gifts, yet were completely deficient in their ability to love one another? How much damage has been caused by people like that? Well, Paul made it pretty clear for us. In the oft-quoted love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, he said, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, and I have not love, I gain nothing. Last week I said that what we call preaching takes place in two different ways. Through the edification of the body of Christ, through the exhorting believers to be, unbelievers rather, to be uh, reconciled to God. I also said that there are two different places where this takes place. One is in the church where we edify believers and in the world where we exhort unbelievers. In this morning's text that we read earlier, we see a very similar differentiation regarding the exercise of our good works in charity and kindness. 
Let's read it again. Like I said, just two verses. Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to whom? To everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. See, verse 9 encourages us to be persistent in doing good, promising that if we continue, we will be rewarded. Our good works... This verse and others seem to indicate are like seeds that we sow. Just like a farmer looks forward to a harvest after he plants seeds, he, he, there, there's a day that comes when he gets to reap that. He receives a harvest from what he's sown. And what Paul seems to be saying is when we sow good work, good, benevolent, merciful works, that it's like we're planting something that will someday come up as a harvest. Now, while the Bible is clear, don't think this is contradictory to other things you've heard me say. While the Bible is clear that we can't sow good moral works in order to reap eternal salvation, that's not how that works. Jesus sowed the good work that reaps our eternal salvation. Amen? But while we can't, we can't sow moral works to reap eternal salvation, it also refers over and over in the scriptures to several times where rewards, the, to, to these rewards which the righteous will receive for the works done unto the Lord for his glory. Did you know that? That that's in the Bible? There's places where it speaks of rewards. Let me give you one simple example. 1 Corinthians 3.14 says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Now, what is the foundation? Jesus, the gospel is the foundation. And Paul is saying that if we build on that foundation, that there will be reward as our work survives. Other scriptures in, in, in the Bible speak of crowns that will be given and authority that will be granted in different, me- different measures as rewards to God's righteous servants on the last day. Now, verse 9 also tells us how to do good works. It says we're to do them without growing weary, without giving up, without faltering. We keep at it. We do those good works. We do those benevolent works when our deeds are recognized and when they're rewarded. We do it when they're mocked, when they're ignored, when they're dismissed by those around us, which may seem to be the case more often than not. Amen? No good deed goes unpunished, right? Verse 10 tells us for whom we offer charitable works when it says, and I had you say it out, do good to everyone. And we'll break that down more in a moment. But first, verse 10 also tells us when to do good works to others. It says, as we have opportunity. Interestingly, the word, uh, the word that is rendered from the Greek opportunity in verse 10 is also the same word that's rendered season in verse 9. What does that mean? Well, in context, in context verse 9 is speaking of a season of reaping. That, that will come to us, that, that's promised us. It says that, that, you know, keep doing those works. He said, he said, because you will reap, will reap if you don't, in due season, if you don't give up. And so he's saying there's a season that's coming for reaping. Well, if that's true, then verse 10 can only be speaking of the opportunity as you have opportunity, the opportunity that we have as the designated season for good work. So in other words, let me break this down for you. Now is the season of sowing. It's not the time for reaping yet. It's the season for sowing. We're in planting time. We're not in harvest time yet. We're in sowing time. We're in planting time. When it says 
as we have opportunity. Now, don't misunderstand those words. It's often misunderstood. Don't misunderstand that. When it says, as we have opportunity, it's not giving somebody a pass because of a perceived time or budgetary constraint or maybe a lack that you think that you have in, in the area of gifts or talents. The implication is, when it says, as you have opportunity, is that God is distributing opportunities to honor him through merciful service and generosity to each of us. And if God is giving each of us opportunities to act in generosity, mercy, and love to each other, guess what? God expects you to act. When the opportunity shows up, as you have opportunity, God says, jump to the opportunity. Do it. I brought that by your way. Not so you can say, ah, sorry, God, I can't help you today. I'm, I'm all tapped out. No, God is bringing you the opportunity to be able to do different things. And we'll talk about how in just a minute. But, the, but what we need first is the willingness to say, okay, I'm here for a reason. Amen? I'm here for a reason. Listen to what uh, Alexander McLaren said. I love this quote. He says, the future on the whole is the season of reaping. The present life on the whole is the season of sowing. I just said that. And while life as a whole is seed time, in detail, it is full of opportunities, openings which make certain good deeds possible and which therefore impose upon us the obligation to do them. If we were in the habit of looking on life mainly as a series of opportunities for well-doing, how different it would be and more importantly, how different we should be. Amen? If, we, if, our, if our radar was out all the time looking for the opportunities that we had to do good. So, you, so, so it's an act, and when you, when you consider that, and if that's true, and I believe it is, it's an act of maturity and faith to keep both our eyes and our hearts open for such opportunities. We are constantly on the lookout for what God has provided the opportunity for us to do good, and we, we have to be ready to act in obedient and loving response to God. So let's return to the question, the one question we didn't answer fully, the, the question of to whom we offer acts of kindness, mercy, and love. The first portion of this verse is clear. We read it together. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. This is a sweeping, unambiguous call to be kind, loving, merciful, generous to everyone, wherever we find need, in all situations, dramatic and subtle. Everyone Everyone say that, everyone. It's a clear, comprehensive word that doesn't need my additional commentary. It's not the definition, what's the definition of is, is. Uh, to, to, to know the word everyone, everyone understands the meaning of the word everyone, right? Do good to everyone. Jesus tells this parable of the good Samaritan to illustrate that we should freely give of our lives to anyone that we find in need. In his account, Luke writes this, this account of Jesus telling the story. In his account, Jesus begins with a man trying to justify himself. And he asked Jesus to clarify the verse that says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you got to understand, it was a very different world back then. People were not as willing to walk in. You may think that we're divided now in political and racial and all kinds of ways. Well, it was pretty ugly back then. 
And people would say, I'm not going to hang out with some filthy pagan Roman. I'm not going to hang out with some half-breed Samaritan. I, I mean, it was all kinds of little divisions. And so Jesus is asked to clarify what, who exactly this guy's neighbor is. And so Jesus, in classic Jesus form, tells him a story. It says that a man was traveling to Jericho from Jerusalem. Now, that's a journey of about 16 miles. This is no small distance if you're on foot or the back of a donkey. So he's traveling to Jericho, and while on the road, he comes across some bandits who rob him, they beat him, they strip him, they leave him for dead. But it just so happens that a priest is coming from Jerusalem. He's also traveling that day, and he comes across this poor soul. And hears his moans for help. And the priest, instead of going to his aid, actually crosses to the other side of the road. You know, he's very busy in ministry. Really busy. And and he can't really, because of the demands of his ministry, he can't really spare the time to help this guy out. So he just goes along his way. Not long after that, a Levite, who's part of the official ministry support team of the Jewish nation, comes by. Hears the man, sees the man, and and has the opportunity to help, but he does exactly what the priest did. He goes to the other side of of the road and moves on. Hey, I just don't want to get involved. This could turn into a whole thing. You know what I'm talking about? I don't want to mess with this. But not long after that, someone else comes by, but this time it's a despised Samaritan. Now, if you were a first century Jew, just the word coming out of my mouth would have sent shivers on you. Oh, Samaritans, ugh. Samaritans. See, they were someone, a Samaritan was someone clearly on the wrong end of the cultural stick. They were political, religious, racial outcasts. There was no one lower in the mind of the first century Jew than this half-breed, truly disgraceful person, Samaritans. Beneath everything that is good and Jewish, a Samaritan. But when the Samaritan sees the man, he does something that the priest... And the Levite didn't do. He stops. Seeing the man lying there bleeding, his heart is filled with compassion. And he gets off his donkey and he goes and he begins to tend to the man's wounds. The Bible says he poured oil and wine into the man's wounds. And then he takes the man. He didn't just say, hey, good luck to you, buddy. He takes the man and he puts the man on his very own donkey. Now, you know what that means, don't you? It means he's going to have to walk now because this guy's on his donkey. And he takes him to the nearest inn and he rents him a place at his own expense for this man to recover. And furthermore, before he leaves, he tells the innkeeper, he says, hey, I'm going to assume any other expenses that this man incurs during his recovery. And when Jesus finished telling the story, he asked the man who had asked the question, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the man answered, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus' final word was clear. He said, you go and do likewise. See, Jesus made the same point central to the behavior and ethics of his disciples. In Luke chapter 6, he said these words that we're all familiar with, but sometimes we don't think about the impact on our day-to-day lives. He said, but love your enemies. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. There it is again, the language of reward. Your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is, think about this, he's kind to the ungrateful and evil. 
I don't want to embarrass you. I don't want to call you out. But could you just slip up your hand if when Jesus found you, you were ungrateful and evil? Anybody else? Some of you are liars. Man, you're liars. Ungrateful and evil. And when Jesus Christ found me, I didn't care one bit about what he had done for me. I was ungrateful and evil. Well, I could curl your hair if I told you the stories of how evil I was. But you know what? He showed mercy to me when I was evil and ungrateful. And so Jesus can only think of one conclusion. If he was, he was merciful to me and my ungrateful and my evil, he tells me to be, un, to, to be merciful to the ungrateful and evil. And he, he leaves with this command. He says, be merciful, even as your father is merciful. He didn't say, you know, do your best. Some people are just difficult. No. He said, don't, don't do your best. He said, do my best. He said, you be merciful like the Father is merciful. Anybody want to stand up under the weight of that? It's important to recognize the kindness and generosity. This is really important to say because I think we've all fallen into this trap. Kindness and generosity and mercy ministry are not some colonization strategy that we use and that we employ to tempt people into the gates of heaven. Give a bum a sandwich so he'll get saved. That is not what this is all about. This isn't some trick we've got to expand the kingdom of heaven. Buying people's votes. No. What we're doing is we're demonstrating in active service the goodness of God the Father to the lost world. And in so doing, we're reflecting the very love of Jesus to the people who are ungrateful and evil. Isn't that what Jesus means when he says, do good and lend, expect nothing in return. I don't expect your money. I don't expect your allegiance. I don't expect your salvation. I'm doing it for a higher reason than that. I'm bringing glory to my Father in heaven. I'm embarrassed. I'm telling you. Gosh, sometimes preaching's like standing up here naked. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. At how many times I've given something to someone or done something for someone because I expected them to be so moved by my selfless act that they would fall on their knees and cry out, what must I do to be saved? But what would the impact on the city of Lubbock and the North Ridge neighborhood be if we acted in kindness and, mo- and mercy motivated by nothing more and nothing less than the glory of God? and not for some supposed return on investment. Another good question for us to consider about kindness and charity is this. Does doing good to everyone imply that we always give material aid to everyone who claims to be in need indiscriminately without any question? Uh, I've had the privilege of doing some travel in places like Mexico and Guatemala, and I've witnessed the the plight of Muslim refugees in, in places, a couple of places in Europe. Uh, I've, I've been to the inner cities of the largest cities of this, of this nation. And I have seen people who are truly poor, truly poor. In these places, in those sort of places, I could have stood out there all day with buckets of money and handed them out, and I would have met some real needs, even if I didn't make a dent in the larger problem. But I want you to think about this. America and the West in general also has many that are truly poor, truly poor. Life has just dealt some cards to them and and, and they, they have real urgent needs that need to be addressed. 
But the problem of poverty in the West is often complicated by numerous programs that have made some of the population dependent with no incentive or motivation whatsoever to work. It's sad, but it's true. And you couple this with the fact that assistance is freely given to people who have made sinful and destructive choices that have severely affected their lives, and you have a really, really, really big problem. Because of this, I just want to say this, because I want to give you some hope and to, that we can make a difference, but because of this, it's probably not wise for you, it, it, under the mask of compassion, to hand out cash to any panhandler that approaches you. Probably not a smart thing to do. It's probably not good to grab a 20 and give it to just anybody holding a sign in a parking lot or at a stop sign. It's probably not good even to hand money out to someone who shows up here at church with a sad story. You're the guy I really wanted to hear, that's right, because you know, you know. See, the inner city missionaries, there's one of them, that I know have pleaded with Christians, pleaded with Christians, don't go handing out wads of cash, because in most cases, you you may actually not be helping, but exacerbating the problem. You may be digging the hole deeper. Your, your, your gift may be making it easier for someone in a pit of sin to just stay there instead of offering what would be real assistance to them. I hate cliches, but I'm going to say one. It's the old cliche. Don't give a man a fish. Teach him to fish. Teach him to fish. This can also be a sin. Now listen, this is where it gets serious. Doing this, just, uh, you know, uh, the guy said, well, here's a sign, here's five bucks. The person comes with a sad story, here's another five bucks. This can actually be a sin if you are being a poor steward of the money that God has entrusted to you. It can be. It can be a sinful activity to do that. Let me back that up with some scripture so you're not thinking I'm on some kind of tirade here. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, most of you are familiar with it. It says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Can I just suggest to you that hunger is an incredible motivator to get your butt busy? Incredible motivator. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly. Listen, it's not popular to say this now, but they're commanded to earn their own living. So, does this mean that we let hungry people go hungry? Does it mean that we let unsheltered people stay that way? Of course not. Of course not. That would be the most unchristian thing imaginable that we could do. But earlier I said that America has a poverty problem that's aggravated by dependency. But before you point fingers, too often we who are not dependent have another problem as well. Us. You know what that problem is? We tend to think that cold, hard cash will solve everybody's problems. And so we just roll up a big ball of it and throw it at every problem that we see, thinking that that's going to solve everything. And it is not the solution to most problems. Oh, it helps. It's a great tool. But it's never the solution. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the solution. So next time you get harassed in the parking lot of Walmart and somebody asks you for five bucks because they're hungry. Easiest thing in the world. No one's going to miss five bucks. Easiest thing in the world. Give them five bucks. No. Why don't you just take them to eat with you? Why don't you just say, hey, I'm going over here to Wendy's. Come with me. 
Let's go. Well, I don't care if you don't like Wendy's. You can go wherever you want. That, that wasn't, I don't get paid. I don't get an endorsement deal from Wendy's. But, but take, yeah, I should. Um, maybe I'll have a bunch of burgers when I get home in, my, in a crate somewhere. But, um, but seriously, take them with you. I know a lot of you have done this. Randy does it all the time. I'm not trying to brag on Randy, but this is what Randy does for a living. What an opportunity if you will take the time to sit down with somebody that makes you really uncomfortable, maybe a little weird, may not smell that great. What an opportunity for you to share the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And all it takes is a heart of compassion, a little bit of your time, and the cost of a burger combo. What a deal. What a deal. What a deal. And can you imagine, since obviously that little example focused on homelessness, can you imagine how lonely homelessness must be? Can you imagine? Can you imagine having nowhere to sleep tonight and, and just knowing that maybe through sin or addiction that you have totally wrecked all of your relationships and no one wants to even talk to you? You think you'd be ready to sit down and listen to somebody for a little bit or just talk to them or just be heard a little bit? You think that might appeal to you? And y'all are cold today. Y'all are cold. Let's run that video again because y'all are really good on that. A video. It made me feel better too. So anyway, I'm not feeling so great right now. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. What if you became an expert? What if you became an expert on available programs? Seriously, instead of just whipping out whatever cash or change you have in your pocket, what if you became an expert on programs? Because I'm not necessarily talking about getting people more dependent. Did you know there are a lot of great Christian programs out there? And there are a lot of great Christian programs right here in the city that actually help people get out of those holes instead of digging deeper into them. Did you know that? What if you became an expert in that? What if you became Northridge Life's expert on programs? So that we could refer people to you and you could help uh, in, in whatever is available out there for addicts and the homeless and single moms, etc. So that you could help people get the real help they need instead of just throwing a few bucks at them. And what if you, yes, you, volunteered at a shelter over here at the school, a, a place for battered women, at a place for orphans and addicts or the homeless, and really got to know some people. I'm going to, one more time, I'm going to brag on Randy because... One of the things that really just appealed to me about him when I first met him is that I would go over there to Sin City with him and people would come in that just had, their life was not upside down, it was inside out. I mean, it was just a mess. And Randy would always take the time, not just to talk to them and help them out real quick, but he would take the time to really validate their dignity as human beings. He would, he would assure them, no matter what they smelled like, I've been in services over there at Sin City where people came in and they were three sheets to the, no, actually probably more like six or seven sheets to the wind. I mean, they were gone. And Randy is still talking to people in the way they need to be talked to, that they are created in the image of God. Yeah, absolutely. And... and and that's what it takes. You, you've got to get to know people. You've got, you, can't just like, you can't just try to fix their lives with your preaching and throw money at their problems. You've got to get down and dirty in life with them if you're ever going to see any difference. Otherwise, anything else is just lip service. And we don't like looking in the mirror and telling ourselves that. But you have to take the life that God has given you and give it away if you're going to make a difference. Reach over, check your neighbor's pulse for me real quick. I can call an ambulance if I need to. 
The church can and should make a difference in the lives of people who need it most. But we must do it in ways that steward kingdom resources well, ultimately pointing people to the gospel and bringing glory to God. And it's not just about making ourselves feeling better. I do not want to give the homeless guy five bucks so that I can take a selfie and put it on Facebook. I don't want to do that. It's not about making myself feel better. That's just a mask, another mask I might add for my narcissism. But did you notice that Paul's instructions to do good to everyone didn't end with a period? It ended with a comma. He said this. Let's look at it one more time. Galatians 6.10. So then as we have opportunity, let's do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of faith. Paul seems to be saying that as we do our good works, that there should be a priority placed on those whom we call brother and sister. That's what he's saying. Paul's not saying that we only do good for those in the church, but watch this. He's saying that we especially do good for those in the church. Especially. Can I just tell you, the guy that comes in here on Sunday morning with a sad story is not number one priority. You are. I'm telling you the truth. You are. If he needs to pay his rent or you need to pay his rent, guess who wins? You do. Because we're especially good to those who are of the household of faith. Man, y'all are tepid this morning. And Paul is not alone in this in the New Testament. Time and time again, the writers of the New Testament place the emphasis of their command to generous, sacrificial love in the context of brothers and sisters in Christ and not just on the lost. Let me give you a couple of examples. James chapter 2, verse 14, very popular scripture quoted all the time. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? It's a rhetorical question. Verse 15 Read that out loud with me. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, stop. Who? A brother or sister is is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food. And one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The context of this is the body of Christ, not some imaginary, poor, drunken, homeless guy out there. It's the body of Christ is the context. 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for whom? But if anyone has this world's goods and sees who? His brother in need and yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed. He's saying that, that the most important thing with us is, is that we, we demonstrate love for, for the brothers, that we, that, we, that we show it, that it's not something that we just talk about. And again, the context is the brothers. It's, it's that we have uh, this, this, uh, this uh, you know, idea that, that, we are, that we're one and, and, uh, and, and that we're family, that we love each other. Did you know that God intended us to be a household together? Did you know that? Thank you all. <laughs> God wants us to be a household, a, a brotherhood, a sisterhood with one another. And so, it, so what is our conclusion here? Our conclusion is this, that God wants us to be good to everyone. That God wants us to be especially good to those who are of the household of faith. And, and, and can I just tell you something? In the United States of America, I'm fairly convinced that we have plenty to do both. 
As I mentioned earlier, I've been fortunate to get to take some mission trips around the world. And in those mission trips, I've seen people that had nothing. And, and I'm here to tell you that nobody in this room, no matter how hard you're struggling with your bills right now, is in those positions. We, if you live in this country, if you're here this morning, you are the 1%. <laughs> you are. It's not like this all over the world. One last scripture that's not the only place in the New Testament where we find this kind of deference shown to the disciples in the charity of the church. In Jesus Christ's own words, parable of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, he says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these who my brothers, that's household language, folks. That's household language. You did it unto the least of these, my brothers. You did it to me. That famous reference is obviously about care for the household. It's evidenced by that use of that term, my brother. So if this is true, how do we best show love and good needs to other members of the body? Well, let me help you. You know, sometimes we'll say that what you give is worship and listening to the word is worship. And we believe all that. But what if you expanded what worship looked like to you? What if you made a declaration, uh, an absolute, uh, uh, just a, a commitment to the Lord this morning to change you, what you thought of as worship? And what if each week when you came to church for worship, you came with your ears tuned to find needs that only you could fill? What if you just had your radar out, your spidey sense was going off about where the need was in this body that you could fill? One week you might find out that someone's been sick or could use childcare or a hot meal. Maybe someone just lost a loved one and you could send an encouraging email or flowers. Maybe you know a lot about cars or computers or finances or any of those things. And, and you, could, you could help somebody, lend a hand to someone who doesn't have that skill. Or maybe you could help an elderly church member who, with something that they can no longer easily do. There may even occasionally be an opportunity for you to crack open your wallet or your purse and cover somebody's bill when they're going through a tough time or, or buy some needed item that someone else can't afford. Maybe instead of just tossing a quarterly donation into the, to, into the basket for our missionaries, we definitely encourage you to give to missionaries, but maybe you could shoot them an email and ask, hey, how can I be praying for you? Maybe you could dig deeper into their needs instead of just saying, oh, Judy will worry about that. Mark will worry about that. Maybe you yourself could dig deeper into their needs and see if there's some unique way that you could be used to fill some need that they have. What if you did that? What if, what if you said, hey, you know what? Sorry to disappoint the mouse in, in Orlando, but we're going to Guatemala this year. We're going to Austria this year because we want to give our lives away to people who need what we can do. The mouse can wait. It really doesn't matter a whole heck of a lot how we bear each other's burdens, but it matters a whole lot that we're willing to genuinely serve each other in ways that God points out to us. It matters a whole lot. And who wouldn't want to go to a church that was living like that? Or if I wandered in and I had a need, I knew that somebody was going to step up to the plate and help me out. 
And like I said, it's not always about money. You know what? You know what most of you need that you're you just obviously would have a difficult time asking for. A lot of you just need some encouraging words. Come in here bearing all kinds of things, and and instead you know come in and you're like, man, I hope no one sits by me Sunday. Go get in their space and tell them that they are created in the image of God and Jesus loves them. And that you're there for them and that you're praying for them. And, and stop right there. You're here, aren't you? Why don't you just stop right there and just pray for them? Lift them up before the throne of grace. It matters. And why just while I'm on it, and I'm on a roll here, why, why wait until next week? Why wait until next week? Why don't you carefully listen for a way that you can help before you walk out of this building today? Let's just look, look for it. Paul said, as we have opportunity, if God lays an opportunity before you this morning, what are you going to say? Yes, Lord, or, well, time to get to lunch. Are you going to acknowledge what you know, or are you going to deny the command that we are especially good to the household of faith? Will you seriously consider the fact, listen to this, tremble before this truth, that the way that you serve your brothers and sisters in the body is really the way that you are serving Jesus. He said it. When you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Or will you look into his face one day at the last judgment and say, Lord, when? Where? We didn't know that was you. May God help Northridge Life Church to be a church that always has an open mouth to proclaim the gospel. But coupled with an open heart to the needs of each other and the needs of the world around us, along with open hands that give all the time as unto Christ, all the time, instead of clenched fists and white knuckles and grab, grasp so tightly to these passing things that'll soon be gone. Give it away. It's going anyway. You ain't taking it with you. Just give it away. Your time, your money, your effort, your wisdom, all of that, just give it away. We're about to receive the Lord's Supper. And so I'm going to call up our elders and the guys that are helping us this morning. And, and I want to uh, just, I just want to ask you something here. As we come to the Lord's table and we partake of the supper this morning, you have a physical representation in bread and the cup that Jesus did not spare anything to serve you. And all the church said, he didn't hold back a single drop of his blood or one cell of his physical body, but gave it all away to serve you, to be broken, to be spilled out. How can we justify clinging to anything? How? How? Oh, and I'm not, I'm not cursing you. I ask myself that all the time. I buy the dumbest stuff, stupid stuff. Oh, but God, I want my heart to be transformed to where the eyes of my heart are looking out there and not always looking at this. Don't you want that? Don't you want that? You know how you get that? By doing exactly what I intend to do when I get to the table this morning. You do it through repentance. Say, God, I have grasped and I have clutched and I have, I have uh, dreamed and wished and desired the bigger thing, the better thing. I wanted to keep up with the Joneses. I wanted to put somebody to shame because of the stuff that I had. And God, I repent of that this morning. You want it all, God? You got it all. If, I, if I'm to be a good steward of it, that's fine. But Lord, I'm stewarding it. If you tell me to give it away, I'm giving it away. And for some of you, like myself, money is a lot easier to give away than your time. But God's asking for all of it, folks. He's asking for all of it, every bit of it. 
for you to say, I am dead. I have been crucified with Christ, and my life is now hidden with Christ in God. And what a great reminder as we come to the table that represents that Jesus gave everything away for us. Amen.